0: This week on Life and Faith. There are lots of stories, big stories, in the world today that are trying to outnarrate each other, which means that they're trying to explain the other stories as part of themselves. At four o'clock this morning, she woke me up to tell me that the Queen had died.
1: Some people are very inspired by religious conviction.
2: Contempt is profoundly different from disagreement. It feels like my spine
1: has been restored.
2: to Life and Faith from the Centre for Public Christianity. I'm Simon Smart.
1: And I'm Natasha Moore, and today's episode is about everything. (laughs) Reality, society, culture, God and the ways that we try to understand it all.
2: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one. It's not fair to say for the faint-hearted in the sense that we're going to be venturing into what has become like so many things these days, a bit of a battlefield in the culture wars, the realm of critical theory or cultural theory. Now, you might have overheard or even participated in arguments in recent years about things like critical race theory or cultural Marxism, perhaps. But, you know, most of us only have a vague idea of what those things really are. And of course, their definitions are disputed, aren't they?
1: Yes, all of this is disputed territory, but it matters for how and also why we have conversations about what we are as a society and what we could be as a society. Uh, And we've got an excellent tour guide for you in Christopher Watkin, who very much knows his way around these parts.
2: Yes, he certainly does. Now, Chris is an academic in Melbourne. He's also a CPX associate who's just written an enormous and enormously interesting book called Biblical Critical Theory. And if that title makes no sense to you, don't worry, stick around. There are some surprises in store here. The book sold out before its release at the end of last year. Natasha's read the whole thing. Yep, I've read parts of it and intend to keep going. And here is Chris to introduce himself and some of these big concepts.
0: My name is Christopher Watkin, and it feels as though what I mainly do with my time is wrangle two small children who have a sort of pathological (laughs) dislike of doing anything that they're told to do, um, who are also lovely. But when I'm not doing that, I am working at Monash University. Uh, I'm in the European Languages Programme there, the French Studies area. And so I teach a range of French studies, cultural topics, and I do research in philosophy. And I have a wonderful wife called Alison. And in the scraps and shreds of time that are left over, we quite enjoy just hanging out together.
1: We're going to be talking quite a bit today about critical theory. Um, This term or, you know, cultural theory or theory in general, it gets thrown around a lot. But lots of us would struggle to define what it actually means? Can you tell us what one is?
0: I think one of the difficulties is that there are different senses of critical theory circulating in society. So the first sense that I came across, this was in the early 2000s as part of my undergraduate degree, was in a unit called modern critical theory. And in that unit, we looked at a whole range of post-Kantian modern approaches to society, really. There was um, something called new historicism. <laughs> that was sort of all the rage at the time. Um, there we, we did a, a week on Marx. Uh, we did feminism. We did queer theory, I think. We did Derrida. We did Foucault and so forth. And all these within the terms of that unit were understood as critical theories in the sense that they took a critical position with relation to the status quo in society. They all critiqued the way things are in the name of a vision of how they ought to be. And that was the sense of critical theory that I had for most of the 2000s. And then there's a narrower version, which is what's called the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, which is Adorno, Marx, Horkheimer, and so forth. And they tried to take the teachings of Marx that were largely about the economy and translate them into a cultural theory, which is where we get the idea of of so-called cultural Marxism from. And when some people talk about critical theory, that's what they mean, that, that narrow sense of the Frankfurt School. And in recent years, there's an even narrower sense that's insinuated itself into the public consciousness, and it's probably what most people think of now when they hear the term critical theory, which is movements like critical race theory, for example, that takes some of that Frankfurt School material and, and mix it with other influences in the work of people like Derek Bell and produce, again, a critical account of society. In other words, an account that says the way things are is not the way they should be. Let's show you what's gone wrong, and let's show you what things ought to be like. And I think it's confusing because the sense that I think we need to engage with critical theory in, first of all, to make sense of it, is the broad sense. Because if all we think of when we we hear the term critical theory is something like critical race theory, then we tend to think of ourselves as some sort of SWAT team parachuting down into society to deal with one particular spot fire, you know, critical race theory or whatever it is, and then airlifting ourselves out at the end of it without realizing that there are lots of different ideas in culture that are connected with each other and that rely on each other and that sort of form an ecosystem. And in order to understand any particular part of it, you've got to see where it fits in the whole. And so I really want to make the case for... First of all, having this broader sense of what a critical theory of society is, and then within that context, looking at particular critical theories that might be prevalent today.
1: That's very helpful, because I feel like you never hear anyone kind of lay it out that clearly, and it's always just assumed that you know what it means. You argue that, therefore, critical theory is not some abstract, academic, elitist thing, that it's highly practical. Why is that?
0: Because. A critical theory shapes the way you live in the world and what you see in the world, I think, is the shortest answer. In the book, I try and talk about it in terms of three categories. So all different sorts of critical theories that disagree with each other will all be doing three things. They'll be making certain things in the world viable, visible, and valuable. So to make something viable means to make it possible to hold a particular position or to think in a particular way. And so an example from critical theory would be Marx and revolution. You might look out at society and think the idea that there could be a society-wide revolution in which the working class rise up is just ridiculous. That will never happen. And then you read a bunch of Marx and you begin to see if, if you agree with his analysis. Oh, I can understand how that might come about. That becomes viable for you. A piece of your mental furniture, if you like, something that you think is possible. Critical theories also make certain things visible. So for a long time in the Western tradition, the ways in which women were oppressed and mistreated in society sort of went below the radar. People weren't noticing it and choosing to ignore it all the time. At at least in part, it was because people simply weren't sensitive to it. It just passed unnoticed. And then the different feminist movements of the 20th century brought it from the background into the foreground and said, you have to notice this. You have to be sensitive to these injustices and inequities in society. And that was a making visible of something that that was there all along. It's just that most people just didn't notice it. And thirdly, critical theories also make certain things valuable. If you read someone like Foucault or Marx, they're teaching you, they're catechizing you what to value what to commend, what to desire in society, and they're also teaching you what to condemn as well. And on that level, all the different critical theories are are moving in terms of those three categories. And significantly, I think, among everything that the Bible is doing, the Bible is also working in terms of those three categories. The Bible is making certain things in the world viable and visible and valuable for us. Making things like trusting God's promises viable. That's that's just a stupid notion for most people who haven't read the Bible, haven't been brought up in a Christian context today. It's not that they choose not to obey God's promises. It's that there's no categories in which that would even be a remotely possible thing to do. And yet you read the Bible and you get to know the God who reveals himself in the Bible and you begin to see that I can see what trusting this God's promises might look like in the life of someone like me. So that's making viable. Mm making visible you may have looked at many sunsets in your life but it may never have struck you that the heavens declare the glory of god and so you you read that psalm and now something that was there all along has become visible to you in the world you look at the sunset and you think god is glorious god is wonderful and i can see that in this beautiful thing uh, in the heavens and the bible also makes certain things valuable i remember before i was a christian if you'd have come up to me and you would have said you know you really ought to desire serving other people as one of your life goals. The selfish little teenager that I was would have just laughed at you and said, that's a ridiculous thing to want to do. And yet you read the Christ of the New Testament who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you see how often he upbraids his disciples for wanting to be the greatest and says, no, you should want to serve each other. And you know, gradually as the, the Bible gets to work on you, you see service is something that's desirable, something that should be sought after in the world in a way you wouldn't have before. And it's in this sense, then, that I think the Bible functions in the same way that a critical theory functions, among everything else that the Bible is doing.
1: Do your colleagues in your French Studies department find it strange that you treat the Bible this way, so intellectually, and that you're so into it, and that you think that bringing that into contact with culture is a thing that should be done?
0: I think there's a strangeness about it simply from the fact that it's not something that's often done, but I think the fact that it isn't often done is itself strange, or at least ought to be strange, because the whole tradition of cultural critique has, I think, fundamentally biblical roots. So if you think about ancient civilizations, what other ancient civilization, apart from the Hebrews, had at the heart of its politics? An institution, the object of which primarily is to critique the rulers of that same country. I'm thinking of the Old Testament prophets. You wouldn't get your Babylonians sort of sanctioning and recording the words of people who were constantly trying to suggest that the Babylonian emperors were corrupt and so forth, which is what the biblical prophets spend a lot of their time doing. And so there's a sense in which right back in the Old Testament, there's a peculiarity to the Openness to cultural critique in the Hebrew nation that's not to be taken for granted in all ancient nations. And then, if you come into the sort of the last days period, you see that the tradition of cultural critique bubbling up and being formed and thought out within a Christian context. So, if you go back and you say, What is the first example of an entire society being put under a critical lens? and an alternative vision of a whole society being offered. So not just little bits of cultural critique here and there, but a wholesale critique of society, which is what these modern critical theories do. What's the first example of that? I think you'd struggle to find anything earlier than Augustine's City of God. And Augustine, of course, is basing his critique on biblical patterns. So he's not inventing this from scratch, but he's bringing into the canon of Western thought a mode of cultural engagement upon which all subsequent critical theories rest. And I originally got this from an Augustine scholar called Charles Matthews, who's got a brilliant series of lectures on the city of God in in the Great Courses series. And he makes the point that for the longest time in, in the ancient world, societies were thought to be more or less permanent, sort of Egypt and so forth. They were eternal. Rome called itself the eternal city. And the idea, therefore, that a society can be fundamentally critiqued and a more appealing option offered was just not part of the mental furniture. There was just no category for understanding that. And then, of course, with the sack of Rome that Augustine is responding to. Um, and also, you know, with books like the book of Daniel, which makes it very clear that God makes nations rise and fall and none of them is, is eternal. There's the sense that Cultures are liable to be critiqued holus bolus. You can take a critical stance to a culture as a whole, and Augustine shows us how to do that. And so all the modern critical theories, I think, are sinking their roots in this soil which is fundamentally and originally Augustinian. And so the idea of a biblical critical theory, to put things slightly provocatively, is the original critical theory. And everything else is copying that original Augustinian model, you know, which draws its sap from the Old Testament prophets and so forth. And so there should be nothing peculiar or odd about critiquing society and offering a better vision for society, I think, from a biblical point of view, and how odd it is that we should think it odd.
2: You're listening to Life and Faith, and Christopher Watkin is acting as our tour guide through the disputed territory of cultural theory, and perhaps unexpectedly, what a biblical version of that might look like. Chris
1: has a deep understanding of both cultural or critical theory, work by people like Foucault and Derrida and Adorno, and of Christianity and the Bible. It's not a common combination to know both of those things very well. And his claim is that the Bible actually out it tells a bigger and more complex and more nuanced story than other stories our culture has for explaining the way things are and should be. I asked him if he can back up that
0: claim. I'll try my best. to <laughs> Your listeners will have to decide <laughs> whether I've done a good job or not. There are lots of stories, big stories, in the world today that are trying to out each other, which means that they're trying to explain the other stories as part of themselves. And lots of stories are trying to do that with Christianity. So there's a Freudian story in terms of which, you know, Christianity is displaced and repressed sort of relationship to the father. And then you project that onto God, who's not really there, but he's a sort of father figure in the sky. And that story tries to outnarrate the Bible, tries to explain what the Bible is doing within its own terms of reference. And for a very long time, In our tradition, the Bible was the story in terms of which all of the stories found themselves. It was the big story that made sense of everything else. But Hans Fry explains in his book, I think it's called The Eclipse of Biblical Narrative, how the tables turned uh, around the 19th century and other stories began starting to explain the Bible in their own terms. And there's a trickiness to this because each story can explain the other in its own terms. So there is a Freudian account of Christian belief. And within the world of Freudianism, it makes sense. And so finding a criteria criterion by which to judge these stories against each other is actually harder than it might seem because each of them brings its own rules. It's like that classic example of, I don't like baseball because you can't score touchdowns. Well, mm-hmm. that's not what it's about. You have to judge it by its own rules. and You can't just condemn everything that doesn't play by your rules because then other people will do that to you and it's endlessly circular. And so I think there are several ways at this. I mean, we all have an experience of the world and of human beings and of the complexity of, of living as a human being in the world. And I think one thing you can do is try on the different stories and see which of them most fully accounts for the complexity of what it means to be a human being in the world and which of them either tries to ignore or suppress or explain away parts of reality that are stubbornly there despite the attempt to explain them away. And I think that's one of the ways in which the Bible stands up very robustly against other attempts to make sense of life in the world. So, for example, the Bible has this really quite, I guess, in terms of secular ideologies, unique approach to reality which is that it sees reality fundamentally in terms of a story. And what I mean by that is that there are certain ruptures, certain key turning points in the biblical narrative that change the quality of existence rather than just being a gradual change. So there's creation, where you start off with nothing and then there's something. There's the fall, where the warp and woof of human existence changes at that point. To live after the fall is not the same as to live before it. And then there's, there's redemption and consummation, Uh, where again, there are qualitative changes in what it means to be human. And so that means that the Bible can account for nuances and complexities in human behavior, I think, that if all you have is a sense of things are fundamentally always as they were, there are gradual changes, of course, things evolve, but there are no ruptures in history, then really the way things are is, is all that there is. And that's quite tricky on a number of levels because it's very hard if the way things are is simply what there is, to critique the way things are. Because, well, why would you? From what position outside the way things are could you possibly get a perspective on it to say that there's a difference between is and ought? The way things are is not the way they ought to be. You're always bootstrapping yourself if the way things are is, is simply what there is. But the biblical story gives you what the Frankfurt School philosopher Theodor Adorno calls at the end of his book, Minima Moralia, a standpoint of redemption. He uses that theological language. It gives you a position from which to view the status quo that is not derived from the status quo and allows you to critique it in a way that is normative. Not just, I would like things to be different because that's what I feel, but that this vision of how things have gone wrong, the fact that things are not as they ought to be is actually valid for all of us. It's not just a fancy. It's not just a chemical reaction that I've had in, in my brain to, to how things are. There's, there's actually a normativity that has bite for all of us. And that is, in a sense, the origin of cultural critique, isn't it? It's the ability to say, not simply, I don't like things as they are, but things as they are, are either unjust or not right or cruel or whatever. And it's the standpoint of redemption that allows you To say that with heft, to say that in a meaningful, in a rich, solid, concrete way that has bite. Mm. And so I think that the Bible in that sense stands up really splendidly against approaches to cultural critique and to understanding culture that don't have that complexity to the way that they see history.
1: Um, there are so many contemporary issues that your book engages with, you know, from totalitarianism to posthumanism, our obsession with consumption, you know, efficiency and burnout. I wonder is there something in there, is there one particular Bible story or one issue or one lesson that for you in the course of researching and writing this book has actually really changed how you live, how you think, how you experience the world?
0: Um- I think there be lots of things that really deepened and broadened my understanding of the Bible and sense of the richness of the Bible as a tool of cultural critique. A couple of examples, one from the Old, one from the New Testament, would be the Babel narrative in uh, Genesis 11, the way that it sets up a fundamental paradigm that is then traced through the whole of the biblical witness and finds its culmination only at the very end of the book of Revelation. Uh, How Babel stands as a figure for a city built on the idea of making a name for ourselves and how that sets in train a particular way of being in the world. Then, of course, in the very next chapter, Genesis 12, another name is made. God says to Abram, I will make your name great. And so there's these two juxtaposed paradigms for greatness of name, if you like. There's the Babelian project of we will make a name for ourselves. And there's the divine project of making a name in the first instance for Abraham. But then in that same passage, God says all nations will be blessed through you. And a theologian like Richard Bocum, for example, will tease this out in terms of two paradigms of globalization, a globalization of domination and a globalization of blessing and to see how those run throughout the whole Bible. I'd never noticed that in Babel before. I think it's an incredibly rich and incisive passage for cultural critique. And the second one that comes to mind is the book of Revelation, which I'd heard preached through at my church one or two times. And I'm sort of feared to tread in, I suppose, in the past because of all the controversies (laughs) about it and, you know, the end times and all that sort of thing. But when I dived into it, for this book, I was just blown away by how powerful and how contemporary, actually, the cultural critique is that goes on in that book. The way in which Rome, in its military and political ambitions, is just eviscerated. And how the way in which it hides its brutality behind a veneer of glory is just ripped away. You know, it's this idea of apocalypsis, the making apparent You know, what is veiled, ripping the veil off. And one thing that it rips the veil off is the workings of Rome slash Babylon, which is still incredibly pertinent and relevant today. You know, the way that the market, as it is now expressed, and military ambition crush and dehumanize and despoil communities is just brilliantly set out. And how they, not simply the critique though, but the way that there's another way to be, there's another vision of the good life that's not all about these twin pillars of profit and conquest. That there's this other city to live in called Jerusalem, which you said it alongside Babylon, and it really makes you think how could anyone have ever been attracted to this rapacious, bitter, exploitative? evil reality, when there's this beautiful, peace-loving, nourishing, flourishing, human way of being.
1: When you do look at culture through the lens of the Bible, can you characterize what kind of world is it that we see? What does reality look like? How does it look different overall?
0: I think one of the fundamental ways that it looks distinctive from this biblical point of view is that everything is viewed through the lens of the biblical story, which in its simplest is expressed in terms of creation, fall and redemption. So everything around us in the world at the moment was originally created by God. This creation was originally good. And evil and the twisting and distortion of that creation supervened subsequently to that. And that's not trivial. That order is very pregnant with meaning. The philosopher Paul Ricoeur talks about it in terms of an asymmetry. So good and evil are not asymmetrical in our world. The world was originally good and evil is parasitic upon that good. is a distortion and a twisting of that good. And I think there's a subtlety in the way that that orients you in reality that is lost in a lot of the social tools of cultural critique that don't come from a Christian stable that either tend to... Overemphasize or think that there's a zero-sum game between a sort of a beautiful, rich vision of creation harmony and the idea that everything's twisted and gone wrong. As it's very hard to hold both of those things together. So, for example, to say that human beings are capable of the most astonishing, jaw-dropping, tear-inducing acts of self-sacrificial love and also some of the most gut-wrenching, vomit-inducing, Acts of wanton and meaningless barbarity that we are capable of. It's difficult to get a view of human beings that can account for both of those. Now, I think the Bible does that very persuasively. But of course, creation and fall are not the only two lenses through which the Bible views reality. There's redemption as well. There's the sense, and it's outrageous. I think it's ridiculous from a non biblical point of view to say that justice will be so radical in this universe that every deed that was done in secret throughout the whole of history, every cruelty that was committed in secret that nobody even knows about, will be brought out into the open and people will be held to account for that. In other words, there is justice even for the dead and even to the level of people's thoughts and intentions. Like nobody who desires justice outside that biblical frame is claiming that level of radical justice. Writing of wrongs. So it's a an off-the-scale sense of the ambition of justice. And I think that, among other aspects of redemption, just gives a very needed and nourishing and vital hope as we inhabit the present moment. I think hope is something that's in short supply, it's fair to say, in society generally at the moment. And I think that the Bible speaks into that situation, not, not with one of these sort of wild-eyed, ridiculous hopes, let's just screw up our eyes and you know hope that everything will be well and then surely it will because we're hoping it. It's a hope that takes on board the worst that human beings can do and yet still persists in hoping that, that all of that will be overcome and expecting the God of superabundance, the God of the how much more, in the new testament you know there, there are all these sayings you know, where sin abounded grace abounded all the more so it's not again it's not equal and opposite there's an asymmetry of god's power to put things right and our our power to really stuff things up quite fundamentally that they're, they're not equal and opposite powers and so that there's a, a very deep existential hope but a realistic hope i hope with its eyes open that i think the bible gives you that's really precious in contemporary life
2: This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. Our producer is the incomparable Alan Douthwaite. If you're wanting to get your hands on a copy of Biblical Critical Theory by Chris Watkin, it is available again now. This book is Hot Property, and it's highly recommended from us here at CPX.
1: Yes, it's long and it's an intellectual workout, but it's also fascinating throughout and genuinely enjoyable to read, whether you're someone who is already sold on the Bible's perspective on culture or just someone who's interested enough to investigate that and its ramifications.
2: And you can dip in and out of this book too, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Please do share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it. And also, if you could leave us a rating or review, that'll help get the word out to more people. You can also email us at podcast at publicchristianity.org. Next week. I drive down the M4 a lot, one of the motorways here in Sydney. Often people speed past me driving in a very foolish manner. I can accurately assess that as being unsafe driving and that perhaps it would be good if they were caught so they could amend the error of their ways. But often I just get angry at the person and think, you know, unloving thoughts. (laughs) Uh, I've gone there from making an accurate assessment to being judgmental of that other person.